exciting discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ where he's interacting with, um, with the, the Jewish crowds and uh, ferreting out the issue of who and what he is, where he's from and who he is. In John eight twelve, as you can see on your notes, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As you watch the passage in John 8, 13 through 58, he really doesn't talk much about light and darkness from that point. Instead, he uses the discussion to highlight the difference, the light versus the darkness. He, the revelation of God's righteousness, is the light. And they, in rebellion against God, are in darkness. So I say Jesus dramatically illustrates light and darkness and what follows. And light involves knowing God through his revelation. Specifically, the knowledge of God in view is generally his perfect righteousness. That's what we mean, I think John generally means by light. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about righteousness, not wickedness. And this is why uh, Paul says that you know, the whole thing is God's revelation of his righteousness. That's what Romans, the systematic theology of the New Testament is about. It's about the revelation of God's righteousness. The biblical doctrine of the righteousness of God is under extreme attack in the study of Romans in the uh, post-conservative evangelical world. Post-conservative. We don't believe in verbal plenary inspiration anymore. We call ourselves evangelicals. They do. They call themselves evangelicals, but they believe the Bible is sufficient to save you, but it isn't necessarily true in everything that it says, or at least factual, because it can't be like every single word. And so people will say, yes, I believe in, in, in the inspiration of Scripture, but I don't believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch, as we talked about on Thursday night. All right? How can that be? How can you have both those statements at the same time? Well, it's true myth and, and all these interesting uh, intellectual ways of denying the scriptures. Well, I think that that doctrine of righteousness is there, the very focus of this attack um, in what's called the new perspective on Paul and the concept of justification by faith. They say, no, 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 you misunderstood Paul. Um, it's not justification just by faith. There's got to be works. And, um, and, you know, read James and James 2 will tell you you're justified by works. And, um, and so what you end up with is this missing of the whole point. And it is this. Righteousness is not the law. Righteousness is not I keep the law. The law is a revelation of the character quality that exists in God, His perfect righteousness. So before God ever spoke at Sinai, He was perfectly righteous. You understand what I'm saying? Revelation of the thing isn't the thing. And that's what I mean. There's this attack. The righteousness required by the law is the reflection of the character of God. And so much of Scripture is about how we don't measure up, how we're not at that level. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in His sight. And so... I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the light and the darkness. I always refer back in this contrast between me and God, between us and God, darkness and light. I always, <laughs> I always refer back to Isaiah 6 when Isaiah saw God glorified. He saw the, the majesty of the Creator 
And it says he saw Yahweh. Uh, John says Isaiah saw the Lord, Jesus. Because Jesus is Yahweh. God the Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, Yahweh, and three persons. When uh, Isaiah saw God, all pretense of self-righteousness, all claim to his own goodness were, were dashed. And he was shattered inside. He had to hit his face. He had to say, I'm ruined. I'm destroyed because I've seen the Holy One of Israel. I've seen God. And the contrast is righteousness. I can't be in the same room. He immediately starts confessing his sins. Psychologically, I think we're told this is a very bad thing for us to experience. Really does a number on our self-esteem. You know, to be told that we're filthy and odious. Noisome. That's, I mean, stinky. We smell bad to him because of our inherent wickedness. And that's what we're seeing in this story. Now, there's more to light than just righteousness. There's the revelation of the righteousness so that when light shines, you can see. And when the light isn't shining, you can't see. And I think this is something that Revelation always does. It shows us who God is and the light seems blinding and piercing and it shows us that righteousness, we can't stand it and we want to look away. And that's what darkness does. It rejects the light. So I think we're talking specifically about the knowledge of God in, in, uh, in view, uh, is His perfect righteousness. If they reject God's revelation, they're rejecting a relationship with Him and embracing ignorance. And that's the other side of enlightenment or light is that I can know it's revelation, but it's not just a revelation in, a, in a, an unspecified sense. It's showing us God and His awesome righteous character and that's the standard there is no other standard you know i really let myself down right ever heard that just so disappointed with myself that's okay you know you have your standard and you didn't rise to it but you know you have no idea we have no idea what god thinks about how we did not rise to his standard trying to pick up a rock and hit the moon right that's the that's the picture and so i really let myself down we 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 do we compartmentalize our little lives into this box of limited perspective and then god's light shines and it shatters that that little box and we say oh i'm i might as well not even show up woe is me for i'm ruined we can understand why it's offensive for the light to shine in the darkness when you see it in terms of god's righteousness I believe it's also a judgment that the light shines. Light exposes, right? Light exposes. And just real quick, let me show you. I think this connects thematically the way Paul uses it. Notice how I said it. I think Paul, in the inspiration of the Spirit, is thematically connecting with this in Ephesians uh, 4. So this I say, this is verse 17, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality and practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He's he's going through his litany, literally, of sin. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have 
heard him and have been taught of him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And so get rid of all the sin categories from verses 25 through uh, 31. Be kind to one another in verse 32, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And um, slip on down to uh, 5, 6. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now your light and the Lord walk as children of light. Positionally, I'm righteous in Christ experientially in the power of God the Holy Spirit bring forth that fruit of righteousness it's it's about God's character morally it's about God's moral character and when you say moral okay now we're thinking philosophy class moral what what is moral just is the question of what is ultimate good right and wrong that's it what's 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 the right what's the good and why and what's your basis for saying so and do you think the Bible talks to that yes does it say that popular Christian cultural morality of 1956 is Christianity. It doesn't mean that. It means that um, when God says this is what's righteous and this is what falls short of it, that's our new moral standard. And we do. Christianity does have a moral basis, but it isn't derived from the world. The question is, where do you get your morality? I think there's never been a greater time in American history to showcase light and darkness in terms of God's view of morality. God's view of what's right or wrong. It's, it's an amazing time of spiritual darkness where the light, just a little bit of light, shines very brightly from, a, from way off. <clears throat> when, I was, uh, when, I, when I was training in the army to go to Iraq, we had these wonderful uh, soldiers that were trained up to train us. Trainers of the trainers. Who trains the trainer? Well, they're called observer controllers. We call them OCs. We call them a lot of things, but one thing we call them was observer controllers and these are the guys that they they get paid the same pay they have the same medical plan they wear the same uniform same rank structure they could next month be in your unit but their job in their unit this time is to train you and train your unit and so everybody has a counterpart mortar platoon leader has a mortar platoon leader guy that's certifying the mortar platoon and um um these guys are always very helpful but when you have to plan for a defense um uh, the observer controllers uh, we're working with the with the other guys that were there to shoot at us, that they were the opposition force, the op four. So we were going to go to uh, to Fort Irwin, California, to the National Training Center and go fight um, a pretend battle with lasers. Mounting a laser tag device on the tube of a tank, it doesn't sound, it's not as fun as it sounds, uh, playing laser battle with tanks. But that's what, like, that's what we do, simulate battle. And... Um, I'm starting to get a headache thinking about all that trouble dealing with that equipment. But um, when we were preparing for the defense, the observer controller told uh, our guy something that was really a nasty trick. He said, now, when you're doing the night defense, make sure that when you're, when you're in your foxhole, you want to um, make sure that you, uh, you guys that smoke light up a cigarette in the foxhole. It'll help you stay awake. Now, why did he say that? Because he was friends with the opposition force guy who was going to be looking for where our positions were. 
So from a mile away, almost with the naked eye, but certainly with, uh, with night vision goggles, if somebody has any flicker of light at all, it shines bright as day, just a little bit of light. And a big sea of darkness from a, from a long distance off really sh- shows up. And, um, you know, th- thankfully, that gnarly old Sergeant First Class E7, not going to be promoted past that 25 years in this army, is going to, sh- he comes over and says, guys, well, I'm not going to say what he said, but he said, that, that's not true. That's, that's what he, that was his message. <laughs> a little bit of light shows up a long way. All right. I think in John 8, Jesus shows you two key and related things about himself in verses 13 through 58, as we saw last time. I'm just summarizing it by way of review. Two things that we saw in the discussion with the, the Jews that were rejecting him. The first is, and they're, and they're related things, right, as you see in the notes. The first thing is uh, who his parentage is, who his, who his father is, and therefore the related consequences, who is he? And that's the way he reveals himself as the light shining in the darkness. He says, I am from my father and I'm speaking the things of my father and these are revealing the father and they won't get it in the story, the back and forth. Who's your father? We have Abraham for our father and they have this whole discussion, but that's the big picture is his parentage. Who is my father? And they reject him because for him to be the son of, of the creator in any in, in the hebrew sense of the son of god he must be divine himself it is a claim to divinity to call himself the son of god and he keeps talking about my father and if you knew my father and if you listen to moses and if you if you're sons of abraham then do the works of abraham you see by by receiving the word of god and believing that's what abraham did he believed and then he he obeyed and then Jesus is very offensive to them. He tells them that they're of their father. Not Abraham, but the devil. And that, oh, you can't get more light and darkness than from God the Father or from Satan. And that's the big contrast that gets developed. And it comes to a fever pitch. They pick up stones at the conclusion of this when he identifies this is the consequence of me being the son of God the Father. For me to be God the Son, or the, I'm sorry, the Son of God the Father, I have to be God the Son, and he claims divinity. And you can't, I don't think it's possible to read John 8 without concluding that Jesus Christ is divine, is God, the very essence of the Father, and he does it this way. You want to talk about Abraham? I'm done with this conversation. Before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi means, it's the way to say I am that I am out of Exodus 3. It's a reference to, to deity. And he even references eternality in the deity. Before Abraham was in the past, I am eternally. That's what he's saying. Before Abraham was, I was. So Abraham somewhere 18 whatever BC. Uh, I don't know the year. But whatever year Abraham's born, then we just got to go back a couple hundred years. There's where Jesus was. No, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. To, to indicate we're talking about the eternal existence of God. This is deity. And it breaks our head to think about before Abraham was born, I eternally exist. But that's what he's saying. And guess what? The crowd understood. Oh, oh no, we're going to kill him. They try to kill him on the spot. That's the darkness and its response to light. Now, what happens to that part of the darkness that is enlightened? 
You and I have just benefited from Jesus' interaction with the, with the Pharisaic Jews. What happens to us as we read John 8? Do we resist and reject and fight in our hearts? Or do we say, that's my Savior, and we embrace him? See, we were darkness, but now we've been enlightened. The light has shone on us, and now we're children of the light. And not just in terms of our position, but in terms of our experience. Notice in this same passage, he says, if you're sons of Abraham, do the works of Abraham. Do the things that faith produces. Having trusted God, obey him because you believe in him. And I think this is the concept of light and darkness in the thinking of John. I will not push it to Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. If you have darkness, it has to be sin. I can't, I can't do that because it's a cheat because that's not necessarily what Abraham, or sorry, Moses is thinking about as he writes that. But, but we can do it in John, and we must. And I think even in, in Paul in Ephesians, this is the concept. It's the righteousness of God in God's shining forth. It's the shining forth of this character of God and to reveal it to us. And so there's two components. There's the thing, and there's the showing of the thing. Two different issues. There's the righteousness of God that's there whether we ever see it or not. And then there's the light shining it, exposing this righteousness to the darkness that is not the same thing as the righteousness, but it is the disclosure of the righteousness. And for our, for our purposes, if we're in the light, then we're walking according to the character of God. And here's where we need to take special care. If you don't have the revelation if you don't have the revelation of the righteousness, I mean it as a steady diet, you're not going to walk in the righteousness. If the, if, it's not a good example today with the sun. The sun disappeared on us, but welcome to Connecticut. <laughs> but but if, uh, if, you, if you leave something out in the sun and there's no sun and it doesn't heat up, but if you leave it in the sun, it warms up. That's, that's how things are, that's how God works. That's how, that's how, the heat is conveyed. And that's what we're saying. If you want to be enlightened, you have to be, or walking in righteousness, you have to be under the tap of that revelation. So let's go to 1 John, which is my ultimate goal in this discussion of light and darkness. 1 John chapter 1. Very familiar passage to all of us. I'm going to look at it in two big pieces, verses 1 through 4, verse 5 through 10. Which, my, by the way, my Bible breaks it that way. This is interesting. Did you know that some Bible scholar said, this part fits together as a thematic thing. It's a paragraph. And then this part, like 5 through 10, fits together also as a paragraph. Now, that's not, John doesn't say that. He didn't give us a, extra biblical textual note to do that and the the versification doesn't necessarily do that but when you when you want to understand a concept generally in the scriptures you want to read the paragraph and most bible translations whether you're looking at the new american standard or the new king james or king james or esv or or uh let's leave it there (laughs) uh holman christian standard bible most of these word-for-word translation bibles the the people have i think the editorial committee has given a pretty good insight on where the ideas stack in terms of the paragraphs. It's not inspired, but it's very helpful 
to think of it uh, that way, to put it into those pieces. And you could watch, there's definitely a thematic change between verse 4 and verse 5. But in verse uh, 1 through 4, you have uh, the preamble to John's epistle. We spent a long time in 1 John on Wednesday nights a couple of years ago. But I just want to remind you about what he's doing in this epistle. He's offering fellowship with God through his writing. And there's nothing, and, and if you want to talk about fellowship in the Gospel of John, which is what this book is about, it's about fellowship with God, you can't get away from the writings of the apostles. The revelation of the righteousness of God in his channel, this special revelation, that's the light. And so you have to stay under that sunshine if you want to be heated up. He says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's his reference to Jesus Christ. And the life was manifested and we've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Now all that, you have the thing, God, and the light offered in the knowledge of God, and then the revelation of the thing in what the writers are saying, what, what John is writing. And then look what he says. The reason for the writing. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I don't know of a stronger place in the Scriptures in epistles besides Paul's lectures in First and Second Corinthians, to establish the importance of apostleship. This is what an apostle is. People claiming apostleship now need to have a, a, a close encounter with Jesus where they get special revelation from him post-resurrection so they can be apostles. People don't mean that by apostle, but that's what the apostles are here in First John. You can have fellowship with us. And that's the first statement about fellowship in this book about the Christian having fellowship with God. I do not believe First John is a series of tests to see whether you have life. It's a series of, uh, of discussions to explain that you are to live the life and how you can know you're living it. In other words, I think First John is written to Christians who need to experience fellowship with God. You do not become a believer, having been an unbeliever, by seeking fellowship with God. Sitting under the Word... There's something specific that needs to happen with the word as an unbeliever, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the revelation of his righteousness through the message of his death on the cross for your sins. And having believed that, that's the beginning of life, and then we have to live it. But that is the revelation of Christ and ongoing fellowship. Now he says, you may have fellowship with us. And I want to talk about that word fellowship. Switch over. I'm going to quit preaching and start discussing. What is fellowship? Or you could say, I could ask this way, what do, you, what do I think fellowship is? Because I've said it, I've defined it a gazillion times. What is fellowship? Rapport. Rapport? I like it. It's a good, good relationship, okay. An intimate relationship, okay. Is there something specific about the word fellowship that um, should be happening if I'm having fellowship. Communication. 
Communication, okay, good. Interaction, okay. If I said that fellowship is the word koinonia, which basically commonness, something in common, and then I immediately switched over to an illustration and said, when, when the person brings out the tray of food, one meal, and everybody grabs a piece, which is a big cultural thing they would do, grab one piece of the meal, but it's all the same meal, you're not chewing my food, but we're eating the same meal, and we're having that in common. Koinonia means common, the commonness, something together. The question must arise, what are we having in common? What is the meal? Fellowship, it, it, it's that specific. It doesn't just mean we're getting along. It doesn't just mean we're, that's like saying a disciple is someone following Jesus. I've only found one verse that, where the people are said to follow Jesus, and that is a summary description. But the disciple is a student, one learning what he says, and so yeah, you've got to follow him to hear what he's saying. But, but fellowship means that we have something in common. Here, let's illustrate it, Matt. Come here. Demonstrator post. Here, will you hold this? This is fellowship between us because we're having this in common. Now, it's a picture of fellowship. You could be, you could be completely immersed in what we're doing, and I could be thinking about something else and listening to the elevator music in my head. You know what my favorite elevator music in my head is? The girl from Ipanema. So I'm... We're not really having fellowship, right? But if we're both immersed, if we're both receiving and participating in this together, thank you, demonstrator, then we are having fellowship. We're sharing something, the thing in common. And that's what John is talking about is that I have this material, this revelation of God in me that that I received from him, and now I'm giving it to you, and now we're having it together that revelation from God. I don't think fellowship with the apostles is possible without attention to what they've said. First John, we're having fellowship with the apostles. And then look what he says is the consequence of having fellowship with the apostles. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That establishes, I mean, if this is the Word of God inspired by the Spirit for our edification, if this is the the way it is, then God's channel for our fellowship with Him is directly through the apostles of Jesus Christ holding their Word and having that in common with God. What this does for you is it helps you avoid the Jesus of our own imaginations. The Jesus that I think ought to be. The Jesus of, like, for example, liberation theology. Uh, you, can, you can yak yak all you want about your eternal state and, and the kingdom and ruling with Christ and all the eschatology. Let's talk about fixing things now. And Jesus, Jesus wants to see radical societal change. And that's what Jesus is about. That's the message of Jesus. Well, no, that's your imagination. That's the message of you trying to read it into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. If Jesus wanted to uh, rearrange the furniture so desperately, he would have. But he said the poor will always be with you. And that doesn't mean that we don't care for the poor. It means that we're always responsible to care for the poor. Read the law. Do you know what the Mosaic law said Israel was responsible to do for the poor? Do you know how to take care of the poor in Israel? 
the sojourner among them or the, 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 the brother, Ruth and, and um, well, Naomi and eventually Ruth, how, how are they supposed to care for the poor? In, in the law, yeah. So you leave the corners of your field unharvested. When you're harvesting, if something falls to the ground, you do not pick it up. The poor people can come in and harvest the corners of your field, and they can pick up what you dropped. Right. That's why Boaz told his people to drop a lot of stuff. Yeah, so yeah to leave some gleanings. Nice That's right. That's right. And so what, so wait a second. Are you saying that the landowner had to harvest the corners of his field and then bring the food to the poor people? Well, that's strange. It seems like that would have been more convenient for the poor person to just receive the food, right? But he didn't say that. What did he say? He said, you leave the work for people to do. Why? Why does the poor person have to come glean and harvest? Why, Why does he need to work? What good is that? Work. What's the benefit? Jesus said you work for your food. Okay. Now hang on a sec. Yeah, yeah, we've got, yeah, work. And if you don't work, you won't eat. Go back to Genesis 2 for a second. Um, what is the first thing we know about God? What kind of God is he? What does he do? He's a working God. He works six days and rests on the seventh day. And how did he make man? Let us make man in our image. So when person, when we don't work, we're not what? We're not fulfilling that imagehood of God. So there's no dignity, there's no human dignity to the drop-off. Here we go. As a, as a policy, I'm not talking about blessing people and helping them. I'm talking about as a policy, he even in the design preserved work for the poor who didn't have land to work themselves. So they became um, workers and had that awesome dignity. Well, anyway, the Word of God is the access point for us to have fellowship with him and our fellowship was with God and the apostles are offering this. So I want to ask that first question, how can we have fellowship? This is just see if we've done our job here. How can we have fellowship with the apostles? They're dead. How do you have fellowship with the apostles? How do you have something in common with them where they who saw Jesus have communicated him so that we now have him too what 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 do you do how do you have a a fellowship with the apostles what's that read what they wrote okay just read through it i've read the bible ever hear someone like i've already read the bible like wow i know the bible wow i don't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot there, you know, an infinite uh, revelation of God. You read what he said, and you meditate on it. Psalm 1, meditate on the word day and night, and then that stabilizes you and makes you, uh, makes you a tree of life planted by streams of water. How does the word of the apostles, if that's the, the way we have fellowship with them, how does that word enable us to have fellowship with God? What do you mean? Okay, the new helper, a new paraclete, yep. Sure. So what does that have to do with the apostle's word? Okay. 
Sure, he's superintending the whole process. So if the Holy Spirit is enabling the apostles to preach the word, then their word is from the Holy Spirit. It's inspired all scriptures, God-breathed and profitable. Uh Uh-oh. So now it's not just what these guys wrote, and they love Jesus, and they want to write stories about him. There's a lady that's trying to do this named Sarah Young. Have you read her stuff? Sarah Young speaks for Jesus, man. She tells you this is what Jesus says. On this day, this is what Jesus has to say to you. When you read what she says, he says, it sounds scriptural. The problem is it's this personal, like, I'm going to prophesy special revelation from Jesus to you. I, I recommend you avoid the bookstore on that aisle. But you read your Bible. You know, that's the benefit. If there's anything good in what Sarah Young writes, it's from the scriptures. This is a little presumptuous the way she applies it. But, um, but think about this. If the apostles really are inspired, every word they say from the Holy Spirit, and that's the, the, the vehicle for us to have fellowship with the apostles, their word, and therefore with God, then, then you've got this tight connection between what the Spirit inspired them to write and what he's doing in you as you consume and reflect and live out what God has said. It is very intensely connected to the Holy Spirit. Thanks for bringing that up even though it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in the passage. But just by virtue of everything Jesus taught in the Upper Room Discourse, and what we have of what the New Testament is, that if that's the vehicle for fellowship with God, then it has to be superintended by the Holy Spirit in its origin and in its illumination. Now, we don't like the idea of continuation of special revelation. We don't like the idea that uh, after John completed the book of Revelation that, well, there's some more stuff that God has to say just to you, brother. And, and so the, you know, I got my Bible and that's fine, but then there's this other, whew, the other stuff. Guess what happens? The other stuff always takes to the fore when we, when we think we're still receiving special revelation from God. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't illuminate us to the truth of the word. I'm not saying that he doesn't work in the word, but that's what we're calling it, illumination. And this is an interesting thing in church history. In the, um, in the 16s, when the Baptist movement started getting, uh, getting some, some steam in England, John Smith didn't go to the New World with the pilgrims. He went back to England and started the, the modern Baptist movement. Baptized himself, then baptized everyone else, said believers should be baptized. And that's really where the Baptist movement came from. It didn't start in Providence with Roger Williams, but he was from the, the John Smith thing. And um, anyway, um, the Baptists have always had this thing about the Bible. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. That's where the revelation is. Don't go beyond the scriptures. And they always had this interesting difference of theological opinion and philosophy of ministry with another group of people that really liked the Bible too, but they were looking for extra biblical revelation. Does anybody know what they were called? The, they had the Baptists in Providence, and then there were some folks down in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. What are these people called? Yeah. It was Baptist theology versus Quaker theology for 100 years, 150 years. Which is it? Is it the sufficiency of Scripture, or is it the sufficiency of Scripture plus, I just feel the Word, and I'm going to quake, and here we go. I'm not really that heavy. It's just not really... Uh, the foundation here isn't what it used to be. <laughs> but that, there was, that was the thing. And I, I think the Baptists are absolutely right. John Nelson Darby agreed with the Quakers more 
on God disclosing special revelation and just, I got a word from God. You know, he didn't call it prophecy, but if you, if you get into brethrenism, there's a lot of, oh, the Lord just told me to say stuff going on. And um, the problem with that is that it's subjective. How do you know? Well, I just know because I just know. Well, but, but my Holy Spirit differs with your Holy Spirit. So how, how is it the same Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself here. And my inner leanings, impressions, feelings may or may not be reflective of the scriptures and the work of the Spirit in me through the scriptures. So we'll go back to the Bible. It's really a, a problem we're all going to face until we meet the Lord face to face. But if this is the word of the apostles um, that is empowered by the Spirit, how does it enable us to have fellowship with God? It is that God, who is righteous, is disclosing that character to us through his revelation. And then when we grab hold of that revelation, we get to know him as he is. We get to know what he's like from what he's told us. And now we're sharing the knowledge of him and his character with him. This is why we say, amen, I believe. I believe what you are and what you say. We're agreeing. We're saying yes to what God has told us. We're having this in common with him. And it's quite, I mean, it, it sounds like, are you just saying that fellowship is just reading the Bible? No, I'm saying fellowship with God is a relationship with Him involving communication from Him and special revelation through a channel that He and His sovereignty determined called the apostles so that I will know Him as He wants me to know Him. And I'll never say I know the Bible or I've read it or any of that because it's a disclosure of God's infinite character. And I'll never get to the end of reflecting on who and what he is and what he said. So I think the answer to the question, how does the word of the apostles enable us to have fellowship with God? It is the only channel giving you and me access to knowing God as he is. And I think Jesus said this uh, in his prayer, sanctify them in truth for your word is truth. You can't do it without the Word of God. And the Word of God is specific to what He's given us through His apostles and prophets in the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, how do I avoid dispensing with the Old Testament? If I get fellowship with God through the apostles, then how do I hang on to what the prophets of the Old Testament wrote? I mean, I've got the revelation of Jesus and the character of God through that revelation. What do I need with the Old Testament Scriptures? Wait, wait, did you just quote someone? Who'd you quote? You quoted Paul in 2 Timothy. Why are you quoting Paul? Because we're Christians and our fellowship with God is through what the apostles have given us. And the apostles tell us that's God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. You see? You can't be a Christian and dispense with the Old Testament. It's for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. How does the writing of the apostles bring them joy? Look at what he says. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This will be the last one for today. How does the writing of the apostle bring me joy? Bring, I'm sorry, bring him joy. We write this so that our joy may be made complete. You know what? I just had this awesome time. I wrote a, a letter about Jesus and I put it in my file cabinet. I feel so great. My joy is complete. Thank you, Lord. Is that what it's about? Dear diary, I hope no one ever reads this. 
really, but I love Jesus. Is that what's going on? We write these things so that our joy may be made complete. Somebody, come on. Save us from this Socratic dialogue. I'm going to start giving you the Shatner. What does it really mean? What, come on, what, what, is it, what is this thing where their joy is complete from their writing? Okay, for whom? They're Christians, and Jesus has them loving us. Their joy is complete because if they write this, we get to have fellowship with God. It's not looking at me. I get joy from this, but what my joy is is you having this fellowship with God. We write these things so that our joy be, may be brought to its full expression. That's an incredible model when you think about it. <clears throat> we write these things, these things we write so that your joy may be made complete. That would make more sense, right? You can rejoice in you knowing God, which is true, but I don't think that's what the Greek says here. Our joy. Same author, 1 John 3. I'm sorry, uh, 3 John 4. <laughs> 3 John no greater joy than our children walking in the truth, right? This is it. This is, this is what Christian ministry is about, is that once I have this, I share it. And that makes me rejoice because you have it and you have it. And God is glorified in your life and we can enjoy this together. And that's Christian fellowship. Ongoing. Ongoing. Well, we've got to talk about uh, 5 through 10 next time. I promise not to just print this off again. We'll, we'll dig into verses 5 through 10 about the functional aspect. This is the theoretical concept of what the Word of God is. What do you do with it in verses 5 through 10? Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the fellowship and the chance we had to think about a little bit today, the opportunity to reflect on who you are, what you've said, and how you want us to think about Revelation, about the apostolic message. Father, we want to sanctify... Uh, the word we want to set it apart in our hearts as above and beyond any other source of information that's at times very challenging for us father there are things the bible doesn't specifically address that we can study out and learn about let us always recognize that your scriptures are the filter your scriptures are the judge the critic that stands over all knowledge because in the scriptures we know you according to your perfect righteousness and the rest of the aspects of your character which you've revealed there. Father, help us walk in the light. Rejoice in your knowledge as we seek to know you and the scriptures. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.